all know someone who is struggling with substance use disorder. And we might not know it, but since nearly one in five Americans who are older than 12 reported illicit drug use back in 2018, someone in our life is struggling. And those numbers were before a pandemic threw our culture into further isolation. So with those kinds of numbers, if you live in the U.S., it's actually nearly impossible for you to not know someone battling an addiction to drugs or alcohol. It could be your aunt, your cousin, your neighbor, your high school classmate, your best friend's sibling, a son, a daughter, or it might be you. One way or another, substance use disorders impact our society as a whole and each and every one of us as individuals. So first, why do so many of us still think that this crisis is someone else's problem? And how can we shift that mentality and become members of the church who bring Christ's love and mercy to the soul's most in need of it. Souls in our communities, in our parishes, and in our families. Welcome to Letters to Women. It's a podcast where we explore and embrace what St. Pope John Paul II called the feminine genius. It's this unique strength and dignity that we have as women and what growing in that looks like practically in our daily lives. So what you won't find here is a podcast where we talk about the one right way to be a Catholic woman. And this is not a show where I sit down with other women and share a set of expectations for Catholic women today that leave you feeling out of place or left out. Instead, you'll find conversations with women in a variety of seasons of life, and you're going to hear about how they are living out their own unique feminine genius. And these conversations are offered to you as a source of encouragement for you to discover more about who you are and how the Lord is calling you you to live out your own unique feminine genius too. My name is Chloe Langer and I'm a Catholic wife and mom living in Kansas City. I'm coming to you tonight from the basement studio, still surrounded by piles of laundry. The dog is still wandering around upstairs, but here we are. My toddlers are in bed and I love rounding out evenings with good conversations about one of my favorite topics, which is the feminine genius and being able to press record and share those conversations with you. In today's episode, I'm sitting down with Keaton Douglas. She's the co-author of a brand new book on responding to the crisis of addiction. And we're talking about what sets today's suffering of addiction apart and what we can learn from John Paul II's theology of the body when it comes to accompanying someone struggling with an addiction and really practical ways that we can grow in our understanding of addiction as Catholic women today. Accompanying those that we love who are struggling with addiction is messy and it is challenging and unfortunately too often it's it's devastating work. But as Catholic women today, we, ha- we have to do it. We need to do it. And for the sake of those we love, we have to start today. So whether you're tuning in to learn more about the epidemic of substance use disorders and come to understand it better, or you're wondering how to start making some real change in your family and community and in your own life, sister, this letter's for you. This episode of the Letters to Women podcast is sponsored by Sacred Heart Tea Company. There are so many fun little traditions around our house that center around this idea of sharing a cup of tea together. Joseph and I make mugs of tea as we wind down for the evenings after putting our daughters to bed. I love sitting with Maeve and Ada for little tea parties on rainy summer afternoons around the house. I just finished a mug of tea that I was drinking during my quiet prayer time right before putting the girls to bed. Sacred Heart Tea Company creates loose leaf teas based around the lives of the saints. So not only is it the perfect addition to any routine that you have, morning or evening, it's also a chance to learn more about the saints and their stories. So their tea shop features green and black and herbal teas and caffeine-free teas for those evening routines. And if you don't know where to start, check out their Communion of Saints sampler, which features sample sizes of all their teas so you can try them out and find your new favorite. Find out more at sacredhearttea.com and use the code LETTERS to get 10% off your purchase at checkout. That's sacredhearttea.com with the code LETTERS for 10% off. 
Today, I'm welcoming Keaton Douglas to the show. She is the executive director of the I Thirst Initiative, a mission of the missionary servants of the Most Holy Trinity. She's a consultant, educator, counselor, and frequent guest speaker in the field of addiction and recovery, particularly as it pertains to the interface of Catholic spirituality and recovery. Keaton is also the creator of the I Thirst Initiative. It's a comprehensive program which focuses on spirituality in the prevention, treatment, and aftercare of those suffering from substance use disorders and their families. She's the creator of the I Thirst Spiritual Companionship Training, faith-based formation which instructs lay leaders and clergy on the spiritual dimension of addiction and recovery. Recovery. Keaton is an avid horsewoman, and she and her husband Tom live on a horse farm in northern New Jersey. She has one grown son, Michael, who is her pride and joy. Keaton, welcome to Letters to Women. It is so good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be with you this evening. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about addiction and recovery and spiritual companionship. But to start us off on this conversation, Keaton, can you tell me a little bit about your story as a Catholic woman? Sure, of course. You know, uh, Chloe, I was born and raised in the Catholic Church. Uh, I'm from Long Island, New York, originally, and um, had a, a very good upbringing with regard to my Catholic faith. And um, but I have to say, I, I really didn't come to have a personal relationship with God, with Jesus, with Mama Mary, until I was much older. I, I had gone to a Catholic university. I had met my future husband there. We married. I wound up pursuing my dream, which was to be an entertainer. And that's really what I did for a number of years, almost 30 years, where I was a full-time entertainer singing all over the world, singing for wonderful uh, events and at marvelous venues and really have the blessing of, of spending time with some of the great musicians of our generations and uh, performing with them. It was a great blessing. But Chloe, I had something happen to me um, early on in, in my career. I was a young mother. I was married for about nine years and I had the unexpected demise uh, of my first marriage and I harbored a tremendous amount of resentment and uh, I was devastated. It was not something I chose. And um, I have to be honest with you, I was angry. I was angry at the world. I was angry at my ex-husband. I was angry at God. So I thought, gosh, I've done everything right. How could my life be in shambles right now? And um, I would tell you that I, I, turned my back on my Catholic faith for about eight years. I didn't want to know anything because I couldn't make sense of what had transpired in my own world. Um, about eight years in, be, after being filled with resentment, I had a divine moment. It had, had to have been divine and it was uh, magnificent. It was um, a moment of forgiveness that was definitely uh, our Lord had given me. And it's actually a story onto itself. And it's a very funny story for another day. But I tell you, Chloe, that when I dropped the burden of the unforgiveness that I carried for so long, um, that was such a weight inside of me. It was like a rattlesnake that poisoned who God intended me to be. When I dropped that in that one moment because of God's intervention, my heart changed and I was called back to prayer. That was the first thing. And the first thing that I was called back to is the rosary, which, you know, I had learned to pray, but I never prayed it. I knew that it was out there, but I never prayed it. And all of a sudden I couldn't stop 
desiring to to pray it and pray it more. Um, I could feel that that Mary was calling me back to the faith and back to the foot of the cross where I remain with her um, as I as we gaze upon her son. And um, it was really Mary that did all of that for me. And I was called to know more about this God who had changed my heart in really one moment, you know, which I probably wouldn't have done for myself because I started living in that that world of victimhood. You know, I kind of define myself as that. And now God said, no more, no more of that victimhood anymore. So I desired, who is this God that's changing my heart? That's making me a nicer person, a kinder, gentler version of the person I had been. And uh, so I went back to school. I went back to get my master's in theology, needing to know more about this God. I went back to Seton Hall University here in New Jersey and um, began this journey. And uh, I was, I, I, people were noticing that I was different, you know, Chloe. They, they knew that I wasn't that angry person anymore. And they said, gosh, you're changed. What's going on with you? And I said, well, I've had a spiritual awakening of sorts. You know, I've had a reversion to my Catholic faith. So I started being asked to speak about that and to witness to this reversion and the spiritual healing that I had felt. So I would go from rosary society breakfasts and communion breakfasts and all over the place. And one day I was asked to speak in front of uh, a retreat ministry that was uh, conducting spirituality in 12-step retreats. And they were they had 25 women there who were suffering basically from heroin uh, and alcohol addictions. And I have to tell you, I was terrified. I thought to myself, why do they want to hear me? I, I, I don't know why. And the, the gentleman that became my mentor of that program said to me, do you think that there's nothing they can learn from you? And I was like, well, I guess so. And he said, do you think that there's nothing that you can learn from them? Right. And I was mind blown because I hadn't thought of that at all, you know. And so um, I wound up getting up and I, I'm as a singer, I, I, I stood in front of them. and I started singing because that was my comfort spot. And then um, they listened and I started sharing my story. It was a story um, that when I cried, that I looked at them and they were crying. And if I laughed during my story, they were laughing. And, you know, at the end of that, we embraced and hugged each other. And they taught me the most important lesson that I've been taught by human beings that very day. And that was that it doesn't matter what breaks us, we all are broken. And they didn't see me different than they, nor did I see them as being different from myself. What we saw was brokenness in each other. We were women who were broken, who were looking toward each other and desiring a spiritual healing that only God could give us. And in that moment, um, I had a, uh, I, I left there and I had a, a strange euphoria come over me. Um, it was so otherworldly that the next morning when I went to daily mass, it was a Monday morning, I went to my parish priest and I told him about it. And he said to me, Keaton, I think you've been called. And I said, called. I said, oh, Father. I said, you know, I'm in theology school. I, I you know, I study the call narratives. This I, Isaiah gets called, not me. I'm just a singer in New Jersey. And he said to me, Keaton, everyone, everyone gets called, but not everyone listens. And Chloe, that began a journey that I have been on Um where I wound up taking over that ministry and wound up expanding that ministry. And now it's an international and global 
ministries seeking to serve those suffering from substance use disorders. In fact, all sorts of addictions, not only chemical addictions, seeking to serve them and their families. And um, I have grown ever deep, deeper in my Catholic faith. It's deepened beyond anything I could ever have uh, even prayed about. It's been such a, a, a blessing to me. Keaton, I love getting to know your heart for this mission and your response to this call through a new book that you just wrote with Lindsay Schlegel called The Road to Hope, Responding to the Crisis of Addiction. Can you tell me a little bit about that inspiration for that book? And for listeners, when they open up the cover, what will they find inside? Well, I hope they find um, a lot of good information. Let me tell you first the genesis of it and how it came about. Once I took over that ministry Chloe, I I posed the question to my mentors. It was a beautiful retreat ministry serving those in New Jersey. And I went to my mentors and I said, you've taught me so much. And one of the things that you've taught me was that while there are mental health and physiological uh, issues regarding those that are suffering from addictions that have to be addressed, the hallmarks of the disease of addiction um, are those feelings of isolation, those feelings of despair, of guilt, of shame. Those are all ultimately part of one's spiritual condition, and they demand a spiritual remedy. And who better to provide this remedy, this healing, than our Catholic faith? And they all agreed, yes, that's that's what we teach, Keaton. I said, then what is the systemic response from Mother Church to the 40 million people that are actively using and the additional 60 to 70 million people who are family members, co-workers, who are directly affected on a day-to-day basis. What are we doing systemically as church? And the answer was not much. While there were various parishes that were involved and sometimes bringing in a fellowship meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, as a church. There was no systemic response. So what I did was I set about to write uh, a curriculum to teach individuals to go back into their parishes, um, to be trained to they could be the provider of the spiritual consolation and the recovery resource information. So that began what we know now as the I Thirst Spiritual Companionship Training Program. And Chloe, since we've begun about almost four years ago, we've trained hundreds of individuals. And now we work in partnership with Seton Hall University, my alma mater for my graduate program. Um, They academically certified our program. And we're also in partnership with Catholic Extension, which serves our mission diocese or some of the poorer dioceses around our nation. So we are able to train people on a diocesan level, as well as individuals that hear podcasts like this and say, listen, I want to be that person and go back into my parish and work. So now we've got more than 200 people that are literally from Dublin, Ireland to Pago Pago in American Samoa and in 24 different states who are working not only in their parishes, but in Catholic schools, in Catholic hospital chaplaincies, um, in reentry programs for the incarcerated citizens who are coming back into society, in, in a correctional facilities, our jails, our prisons, our treatment facilities, etc. Wherever there are Catholics and there are people suffering, we seek to be. The book, The Road to Hope, was 
born from this work that we're doing, this training, because while I would love to have everybody trained and be expert in this kind of work, be able to go back to your parish and set up a recovery ministry, et cetera, I'd love you to be certified. I realize that not everybody can do that. And that's, that's impractical. So Lindsay and I set out to write a book that when you open it up, it would do several things. I think the most important thing is it will change hearts because we will look at each other from the perspective of our mutual brokenness and the commonality of our brokenness. And that I want to, I want people to see, to look upon those that are suffering from the disease of addiction and see themselves in them, their own suffering. I want them to have the experience I had with those women, you know, where I looked at them and I thought, oh my gosh, we've got so much in common. It's not what 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 we have that's different. What brought me to that place of brokenness was adultery and yours is addiction. But sisters, we've both been broken. We've all been broken. We've been despairing. We've been isolated. So I want people to open our book and not only have a change of hearts, understanding that, but to dispel the myth of the other. There are no others. We are all the other. Once we start breaking down these barriers, we break down the societal stigma. We welcome people back to the face because we understand them. Our hearts understand them. We begin to see the face of Christ in them and we see ourselves. But the book also offers some practical solutions that we can take back into our parishes and put into place tomorrow next month, next year, ideas for what we can do on a day-to-day, what we can do moving forward, what we can do working ecumenically with our brothers and sisters from different denominations. All of these things are very important. So we're looking at a change of heart, a dispelling the myth of the other and practical solutions for welcoming people back home to Mother Church. You know, what struck me when I was reading through your book is person-first language, this idea that so often when we read a news story or and it's not even even that separate from us because this is people in our own lives who are suffering from addictions, even if we don't know it. But it's so tempting, I think, as a society to say, oh, they're just an addict or well, what did we really expect? Because that's their story and, and this is how it goes. But I think what what was so beautiful about reading through your book and learning more about I Thirst is that, no, that's a human being who is a beloved son or daughter of God who struggles with this particular type of brokenness. I'm delighted because that's exactly what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to to tug at your heartstrings, to open your heart, to change it, to to really have an understanding. You know, we there are so many things that bring a person to that point. Whether it's you know, and and, and Chloe, so many of the people that I work with have experienced trauma in their early lives, trauma or abuse, or sometimes simply it starts as a habit, a desire to fit in, or maybe not feel like that square peg in a round hole, or maybe it was a learned behavior from from other family members. Or th- the the point is, when it starts, it develops such physiological and psychological issues that that mitigate any other factor. People wonder, well, if if he really loved his family enough, he'd just stop without having a true understanding of those mitigating um, psychological and physiological things that keep a person in. What I can assure you and all of your listeners is that nobody wants to wake up in the morning hungover and nobody wants to wake up dope sick. Um, so, but there's there there are things that go on that that preclude them from just simply stepping out of it. 
Suffering and an addiction to a variety of substances isn't anything that's necessarily new in today's culture. The, the suffering has been a part of the human existence since original sin. But what makes particularly opioid addiction different? And, and what important element is missing from many resources that are available for people suffering from addictions and their families? You know what? I think the big the big issue is that with any sort of addiction, and this is why it makes bereavement for somebody that's lost somebody to addiction is very different than if you lost somebody to cancer or to COVID or something. And that is because of the societal stigma, because society still looks at this disease and says, listen, it's your choice. You made a bad choice, right? And uh, and so this is of your own doing. So we don't want to put our our time and energy into walking with somebody or working with somebody that has done this basically to themselves. And that's a very um, misguided way of understanding the disease. For as I explained, people get there for very different reasons. And as you so aptly pointed out, this has been part of our human condition. So we could look into sacred scripture and see it, whether it's in uh, Proverbs 23, whether we see Noah and gazing upon Noah's drunkenness, whether we look at my favorite passage, which is the letter from St. Paul and his letter to the Romans, you know, in chapter seven, where I'm going to paraphrase, he basically says, why do I do what I don't want to do? You know, I know the good I should be doing and I can't do it. So we know that whatever it was from which he was suffering, that he was tortured by a compulsion to do something that he didn't want to do, right? So even St. Paul had these issues that our brothers and sisters who are suffering, and in fact, all of us suffer from these unruly desires or unnatural attachments to things that preclude us from developing that intimacy with God in our lives. And so, you know, with the opioid addiction, you know, it, it's... it's um, it's been so difficult because so many people look at it and say, oh, that doesn't that doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect my family. Look at them using that choice. Who could possibly do that? And they don't understand, as I said before, the mitigating psycho, uh, psychological and uh, and physiological issues that arise with that. So people blame, you know, um, the person that's doing it. And it, it's quite interesting because I post a lot on LinkedIn, you know, as Douglas on LinkedIn. And I, I post a lot about our work and I thirst and the, what's going on in the world of treatment and addiction, et cetera. And I posted something one time and um, I actually talk about this in a book. There was a, a very well-regarded uh, Catholic woman, prominent Catholic woman with whom I am connected on LinkedIn, um, who responded in, in a way that I was not expecting. She was like, well, they do this, they bring them on themselves. This is a moral choice. This is a moral failing. And I, I read that and I thought, ah, and then, you know, I, I put it away because I didn't want to answer right away. I wanted the Holy Spirit to do the answering for me and not me answering. So I put it away. And uh, the next morning I woke up and the answer, the, her response was erased, was no longer there. Praise, thanks be to God. But, um, but what it said to me was, I, I really thought about it and I really prayed on it. And I thought, you know, I, I understand somebody making a comment like that if they've never been affected by the disease of addiction. I understand if you don't know it, if you haven't studied it, if you haven't unpacked it the way that I have been privileged to do. But what I don't understand is that as a Catholic, I want us to look what is the root of that pain that would cause a person to disenfranchise themselves from their whole lives, from those that they love, from their work, sometimes from their children. 
what is that pain at the root? They are punishing themselves enough. So it's it's not about kicking somebody down to the curb. Yes, it's about setting boundaries. And that's something that we talk about extensively. But it really is understanding the disease and walking with our brothers and sisters and seeing our suffering in theirs and seeing the face of Jesus, even in them, even, even when we think that their behavior is repugnant. You know, Jesus calls on us to do that. Throughout the book, you also talk about St. John Paul II, who is who is one of my dear favorite saints. And beyond the teachings about human sexuality and marriage and family, his theology, the body, over and over reminds us of God. God calls us to make a gift of ourselves to others. Talk to me about the intersection of theology, the body, and, and accompanying those who are addicted. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I... I... I've, I cannot call myself a theology of the body scholar, but it has affected my life and I have read it and I have studied it. And it always struck me that it's so far reaching, you know, and sometimes I think we, we only, we pigeonhole it into only certain areas where it's very important, but the overriding element of it is this, this gift of self that we can give to others. Right. And the other thing is, is also really realizing the unique human dignity and the personhood of all people. And so, you know, for this, for when you accompany somebody who is suffering from the disease of addiction, you are really living out that beautiful gift of self by simply being present and recognizing their unique human dignity, even though they may be in a state where they don't recognize it themselves. You know, and 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 I had the blessing of knowing Father Zach Zwentek, who is um, he's now at Princeton. I knew him from from being at Seton Hall. He is a theology of the body scholar. Um, and we sat down and we spoke with Father Zach, and he said, you know there is such a correlation between theology of the body and the way that we would interface or interact with those that are suffering because of this beautiful gift of self where we have an outpouring of self to this person who is indeed a unique human, uh, a person of unique human dignity. And he said, there's nobody that God doesn't want to spend eternity with. There's nobody. And we need to remember that when we are working with folks, especially when we think, oh, they're different than I. No, 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 they are not. They are not different. And so theology of the body really speaks to that person's personhood, their unique human dignity, and the gift of of selfless love and the gift of self that we must give to them as we accompany them on this road to hope, the metaphor for their recovery. For women who are listening who Maybe this is the first time that they're sitting down and, and thinking about this epidemic. We see this problem that we have as a society. Here's the numbers. Here's the statistics. Here's the Catholic understanding of an accompaniment. How do we get practical when it comes to accompanying someone? If, what advice would you give to a listener who says, okay, I, I know I have to do something. And maybe particularly for someone who is who knows a, a specific person that they love, who they can say like that, yep, that is the person who I would like to, to walk alongside. I think the, the most important thing to do is to recognize that we're in a role of servant leader and we are responsible for our brothers and sisters, right? We are our brothers and sisters keepers. So we want ourselves to begin that change. It must start within us to have an understanding, to recognize that brokenness. All of this is explained in the book, The Road to Hope, about about really seeing it through the lens of our own brokenness, remembering the words also of Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where he calls upon us to go 
you know, out of our lane, not to pass the bloodied person in the middle of the street by anymore, like the priest and the Levite, but to, to really commit ourselves to being actively engaged and showing his love and mercy to those who are sick and suffering. So first we just, we turn with that, that desire to open our hearts, to change our hearts. There are practical ways to do it also is, you know, to, um, to, to ask our pastors and whatnot. And, and for those of us who are in various ministries, and I know so many of the, the, the women that are listening today are, you know, to begin to integrate the, the conversation, the dialogue, to start the conversation in parishes, even something so simple, Chloe, as um, the prayers of the faithful, you know, including things like that, a mass intention. You know, there's overdose awareness month is August, but recovery awareness month is September. I, purchase mass intentions and have the whole congregation, my whole parish prays for, for folks. Every once in a while, we'll say for, for those that are suffering from the disease of addiction and their families, may they feel the healing presence of Christ Jesus in their lives. You know, we ask this, Lord, hear our prayer, right? We, you know, things of this nature, we can learn how to put out pamphlets that for fellowship meetings, uh, such as Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, near our food pantries. A lot of this, again, is in the book. For those that want to take it even even higher, you know, to a, a higher elevation, a le different level, I recommend to them, join us, join us and take the course so that you could be certified through Seton Hall, through iThirst, 4.8 continuing education credits units that you can use transferable. Join us, learn more about us. I invite everyone to our website to see the work that our spiritual companions are doing all over the place. Um, and because we're in Ireland, I can say we are international. Very exciting. And, and because we're in Pago Pago, who knew I can say we're global because we're spanning all these different time zones, which is great, but the need is everywhere. You know, I'm going to begin another class. I'm teaching folks in Alaska. I'm teaching the diocese of Anchorage where, you know, with some of the indigenous people there, there is such, such, uh, uh, a problem with with substance use disorders and on our Native American reservations, we're working with six different Native American reservations. So a change of heart, an understanding that there are things that we could do, simple things like that, um, again, outlined in the book. And I welcome people to our website, ithirstinitiative.org. If they want to learn more about getting certified and going back, taking this ministry to their parishes and their communities beyond that. Keaton, can you tell listeners where they can pick up a copy of, of The Road to Hope? Absolutely. There's a number of places where they can find it. It's uh, it's published by our Sunday visitors, so they can go to osvcatholicbookstore.com, osvcatholicbookstore.com. They can go to our website, www.ithirstinitiative.org, ithirstinitiative.org, and they can always go to Amazon. Dot com where the, the books are readily available there as well. How do you live out the feminine genius in your daily life, especially as a woman who's passionate about helping those suffering from the disease of addiction find peace in Christ? I think that um, the first thing is that I, I am receptive to um, that which is going on around me. I receive information from both individuals, from the world of uh, addiction and recovery and, and, and 
really I'm, a, I'm receptive to the plight of those around me. I think that I'm also very sensitive. So my feminine sensitivity and that sensitivity allows me to go out and do work on their behalf, right? That sensitivity um, makes me realize that there's an issue that I want to become involved with. Um, the My feminine generosity, um, I think, is that which propels me to do the actual physical work, the call to action, the writing of the books, the everything that I have to do. I try to be generous of spirit to those um, that need that need me to walk with them and need others to walk with them. So I think that that is very important. And then my spiritual maternity, you know, I, I really feel, um, you know, God, I would say God gave me one biological child. He did. That was it. Um, but I have hundreds of people, men and women for whom I'm their spiritual mama. Um, and that is a blessing. And that is because of the feminine genius, because of the receptivity that we have been all given as women, the sensitivity that I try to bring to it, to, to walk with others, the generosity and creating programs and trying to give back to them. And then to, to be their spiritual their spiritual mother in emulation always of our blessed mother who guides me in all things that I do and everything that is this program is hers. Thank you so much. Thank you for your feminine genius. Thank you for this ministry, for this book, for all of all of the fruit that it's bearing already. And, and thanks for coming on the show tonight. This has just been a great shot. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Chloe. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Letters to Women podcast. Check out the show notes for my conversation with Keaton on my website, letterstowomenpodcast.com, or you can just scroll down in your podcast player for links to learn more about Keaton's new book, The Road to Hope and the I Thirst Initiative. In the show notes, you're also going to find a link to Sacred Heart Tea Company. That's the sponsor for today's episode. Finally, you're going to find a link to sign up for my newsletter, Naptime Notes. Once a month, I'm sharing about the books that I'm reading, both to myself and the girls some braggable thrift store finds, updates on where we're at in our adoption journey, and the podcasts that I'm listening into. Naptime Notes is always going to be free, but if you subscribe at five bucks a month, you get early and ad-free access to all of the Letters to Women podcast episodes way before they go live. If you listen to the podcast and you love the conversations and the guests of the show, please leave a rating and review, especially if you are tuning in on iTunes or Spotify. And if you know someone who would love to listen in on this conversation with Keaton, please send it their way. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss any future episodes. There are so many good conversations coming up this summer on topics from everything from how thrifting can be romantic to meeting Jesus in a dive bar. So if you ever want to share about a guest that you would love to see on the show or even share about your experience as a listener, send me an email at letters to women at gmail.com. I would love to connect with you. And that's all I have for today's episode. So until next time, be not afraid. <laughs>